Hi guys, and welcome back to the Mystery and Comedy Old Time Radio Podcast. Please welcome to the show, Stage Film Actor and Radio Actor, Mr. John Lunn. Mr. John Lunn appeared in many movies, such as High Society, A Foreign Affair, The Mating Season, White Feather, No Man of Her Own, Night Has a Thousand Eyes, and co-starring in two episodes of My Friend Irma, the My Friend Irma TV show and the My Friend Irma Goes West. But what a lot of people may not know is that Mr. John Lunn is also known as a great actor behind the microphone, appearing in such roles as Lux Radio Theater, Suspense, Escape, and many others. Tonight we bring Mr. John Lunn to the show to chill our spines. In this first episode, he plays a man who is a crew member on a captain ship. When they go to Venezuela, there's a big crate that he is carrying along with him. So, he informs the passengers on the boat that they don't have to worry about it getting out. It is a big poisonous snake. And it is called a shipment of mute freight. And in this next episode starring Mr. John Lund, he plays a man who is the part of the administration of a hotel, but becomes consumed with envy when he wants to have his boss's job. So one day guests are complaining about or actually hotel workers are complaining about a guest having rats in his room and every maid is terrified to go in there so the the goes in there and he sees that the man does have rats and then the doctor tells him about an experiment that he's conducting and it's called 6R Where when a person takes the substance, the powder, in small doses, they end up feeling the effects real quick. So, he tries to do his best to have his boss take the powder without him knowing it. But what he doesn't know is that his boss each time he has brought him a cup of coffee he has switched the cups of coffee around and the title of that episode is called experiment 6r and it appeared on the old time radio show suspense i hope you guys enjoy Mr. John Lunn in two episodes guaranteed to chill our spines. If you like the show, please comment and subscribe, guys, and enjoy the show. Thanks. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? You want to get away from it all? 
We offer you Escape, starring John Lund. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are groping your way slowly through the dark hold of a ship at sea, moving carefully, step by step, searching intently for something you dread to find because you know that this ship carries a cargo of death. Today, with John Lund in the role of Chris Warner, we escape to a harbor front in Venezuela and a grim voyage which started from there. As told by Martin Storm, and his gripping tale, A Shipment of Mute Fate. I stopped on the wharf at La Guaira and looked up the gangplank toward the liner Shankay, standing there quietly at her moorings. The day was warm under a bright tropic sun, and the harbor beyond the ship lay drowsy and silent. But all at once, in the midst of those peaceful surroundings, a cold chill gripped me, and I shivered with sudden dread, dread of the thing I was doing and was about to do. But too much had happened to turn back now. I'd gone too far to stop. I set the box down on the edge of the wharf, placed it carefully so as to be in plain sight and within gunshot of the captain's bridge. I knew what I was going to do, but I couldn't forget that a certain pair of beady eyes were watching every move I made, eyes that never blinked and never closed, just watched and waited. I turned and started up the gangplank. Uh, oh, oh, you, you startled me, sir. I, I didn't hear you. Why, it's Mr. Warner. Well, hello, Mother Willis. How's the best-looking stewardess on the seven seas? Oh, well, I'm, I'm fine, Mr. Warner. Well, I, I guess I'd better run along now and get on with my chores. Wait a minute. That's a fine greeting after two months. Well, it's just that I'm so busy. Now, I don't believe a word of it. Sailing day's tomorrow. You're simply avoiding me, that's all. Oh, no, Mr. Warner. Really, I'm not. And on the trip down from New York, you said I was your favorite passenger. Well, but I'm only Here. trying to... What's that you're carrying in your apron? Oh, it's it's nothing. Just supplies. Supplies? Yeah, let's have a look. No, please. What? Why, it's a cat. It's Clara, Mr. Warner. Mr. Bowman said I had to leave her ashore, and I just couldn't. Who's Mr. Bowman? The new chief steward. Well, Clara's been aboard with me for two years, and I just can't leave her here in a foreign country. Especially with her condition, so delicate and all. <laughs> well, I hope you get away with it. You... You won't tell anyone. Oh, not a soul. As a matter of fact, if things don't work out right, we may both end up smuggling. Happy to have had you aboard on the trip down two months ago, Christopher, and I'm happy to have you along with us on the run back to New York. Oh, thanks, Captain Wood. Uh, there is one thing, though. Mm -hmm. What's that? I'm uh, having a little trouble with the customs men here. Uh, I wondered if you... I can't do it, Christopher. I cabled your father just this morning. Told him I would have done it for you if I possibly could. He sent a request from New York, you know. Yes, I thought he would. I uh, wired him from upriver last week. Well, I hated to refuse, but that's absolutely out of the question. Captain Wood, I'm afraid I don't follow you. My responsibility to the passengers, son. We have women and children aboard, and on a liner, the safety of the passengers comes ahead of anything else. But with proper precautions... Something might happen. What? I don't know what, but something might. You've carried worse things. There isn't anything worse. Any skipper afloat will bear me out. No, Christopher. I simply can't take the chance. That's final. <laughs> It wasn't final if I could do anything about it. I hadn't come down here to spend two months in that stinking backcountry and then be stopped on the edge of the wharf. Two months of it. Heat, rain, insects, malaria. I'd gone clear in past the headwaters of the Orinoco. Traveled through country where every step along the jungle trail might be the last one. Oh, Sanchez! Yes, senor Warner. Better start looking for a place to camp. It'll be dark in a little while. Yes, senor. 
very soon we turn to river, camp on rocks by water. This very bad country. This very bad country. You've been saying that for ten days now. Very bad country. This, senor Warner, this very bad country. Oh, skip it. For all the luck we've had so far, might as well be Central Park. Central Park? Uh, I don't understand. Oh, never mind. We don't... Here, what's the matter? Quiet there, quiet! Sanchez, what's wrong? They're in the path. See? Bushmaster! Bushmaster. The deadliest snake in the world. Bushmaster. Its Latin name was Lachesis Muta. Mute fate. It lay there in the center of the path, a ten-foot length of silent death, coiled loosely in an undulant loop, ready to strike violently at the least movement. Here was the one snake that would go after any animal that walked, or any man. It lay there and watched us, not moving, not afraid, ready for anything. The splotch of its colors stood out like some horrible, gaudy floor mat lying there on the brown background of the jungle, waiting for someone to step on it. Here was what I'd come 2,000 miles for, a Bushmaster. It was three days later when Sanchez brought me the snake in a rubber bag. He was shaking so hard, I thought for a moment the thing had struck him. One thing you make sure, Senor Warner, not turn him loose in Venezuela. Because he know I the one who catch him. And he know where I live. All right, Sanchez. I'll keep an eye on him. He know you pay me to catch him. All the time he watch and wait. You no forget that, Senor Warner. Because he no forget. Not ever. Well, after going through all that trouble and danger... I wasn't going to let a pig-headed ship's captain stop me at the last minute. At least not as long as the cables were still in operation between LaGuaira and New York. Morning, Captain Wood. Boy at the hotel said you wanted to see me. That's right, Christopher. Do. Sit down. Thank you. Seems you weren't willing to let matters stand the way we left them yesterday. Sorry to go over your head, Captain Wood, but I had to. The museum sent me all the way down here for that snake, and I'm not going to be stopped by red tape. Why, this will be the only live Bushmaster ever brought to the United States. If I had my way, Christopher. But orders are orders. I got a cable from the head office this morning. All right, now, suppose we talk about precautions. Well, I'll handle it any way you say. It's got to have a stronger box. That crate's too flimsy. Oh, it's stronger than it looks. That wire screen on top would hold a wildcat. Hmm. But anyway, I bought a heavy sea chest this morning. We'll put the crate inside it. it sounds all right. We've got a lock on it. Heavy padlock. Oh. It's fixed so the lid can be propped open a crack without unlocking it. Snake's got to have air. All right. But in dirty weather, that lid stays shut. I'm taking no chances. Fair enough. We'll keep the blasted thing in my inside cabin where I sleep. I can't have it in the baggage room. And nobody on board's to know about it. Whatever you say, Captain. We won't have any trouble. After all, it's only a snake. It doesn't have any magical powers. I saw a Bushmaster in the zoo at Caracas once. Had it in a glass cage with double walls. Never move. Just lie there and look at you as long as you were in sight. Gave a man the creeps. I didn't know they had a Bushmaster at the Caracas Zoo. They don't now. Found the glass broke one morning, the snake gone. Night watchman was dead. They never found out what happened. Well, the watchman must have broken the glass by accident in some way. The way they figured it, the glass was broke from the inside. We uh, sail in four hours. Into the Caribbean, with perfect weather and a sea as smooth as an inland lake. The barometer dropped a little on the third day, but cleared up overnight. Left nothing worse than a heavy swell. But in spite of the calm seas and pleasant weather, I found myself feeling more and more often a, an ominous foreboding. I was developing an almost unnatural fear of that snake. I stayed clear of the passengers pretty much. Got the habit of dropping into Captain Wood's quarters several times a day. He kept the heavy box underneath his berth. I'd approach it quietly and shine my flashlight through the open crack. 
Never once could I catch that 12-foot devil asleep or even excited. He'd be lying there, half-coiled, his head raised a little, staring out of those beady black eyes, waiting. He'd still be like that when I turn away to leave. Maybe that's what bothered me. That horrible and constant watchful waiting. What in the name of heaven was he waiting for? Well, hello there, Mr. Warner. Oh, how are you, Mother Willis? My, but you and the captain spend an awful lot of time around this cabin. I'm beginning to think the two of you must have some guilty secret. Oh, no, no, nothing like that, Mother Willis. I don't know about Captain Wood, but I certainly don't have any guilty secret. She's running quite a swell out there, Mr. Bowman. Yeah, it's a little heavy, all right, Mr. Warner. Guess a storm passed through to the west of us yesterday when the glass dropped. I think it missed us then, huh? Well, that's where the mate figures. Sure stirred up some water, though. This'll put half the passengers in their bunks. <laughs> Makes it great for my department. Two-thirds of them will want a steward to hold their heads. They'll keep Mother Willis so busy that you... Wait. What? Look at the size of that wave. Great, Jehoshaphat. We're going to take it on the port bow. You better hang on. <laughs> Freak of whoever was one. On another wave that size in sight. Yeah, you see them like that sometimes, even on a calm sea. Uh, I better get below, Mr. Warner. That water probably did some damage on the officer's deck. Yeah, I suppose. What did you say? The wheel companionway was open on the port side. The bridge cabins must have taken a pretty bad smashing. They're right below the. Something wrong, Mr. Warner? Oh, no. No, nothing at all, Mr. Bowman. At least, I hope not. I didn't stop to find Captain Wood. Of course, I knew it was only one chance in a thousand, but the chances against that freak wave were one in a thousand, too. I stumbled down the companionway and along the passage to the captain's cabin. Oh, come on in, Mr. Warner. Oh, Mother Willis. My, isn't this cabin a mess? I'm trying to get some of these things out to dry. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to check... Where's that box that was under the captain's bunk? Oh, that? Oh, I just threw it out in the deck. What? With the desk over there slid into it. It was all smashed. With the small box inside of it. What happened to that? Oh, they were both splintered, Mr. Warner. Broke wide open. Oh, no. Why, Mr. Warner, you're white as a sheet. Mother Willis, will you go find Captain Wood? Yes, sir. Tell him to tell him to come down here immediately. Well, well of course, Mr. Warner. I'll go tell him right away. I can finish up here. I pulled open the top drawer of the bureau beside me and took out the captain's flashlight and the loaded pistol. Mother Willis had left a mop standing by the door. I put my foot on the head of it and snapped off the handle. Every move I made turned into slow motion. I could hear my own heart beating. Slowly, I started to search the cabin. Sodden heaps of clothing were scattered around on the wet black floor. I punched at them one at a time, holding the gun cocked, the flashlight pointing along the stick. Nothing. I worked around the room, throwing the light into the dark corners, back of the desk, under the bunk. Wherever I turned, I could feel those cold, unblinking eyes at my back, watching and waiting. Still nothing. Using the stick, I pushed open the closet door, threw the light inside. Carefully, I poked at the boxes and junk on the floor. The snake was not in the closet. Inch by inch, I covered the entire cabin. And only then, the horrible realization began to dawn on me. Captain Wood. Mother Willis just told me. Well, Christopher. So, it's happened. That's right. It's happened. I see you found the gun. That's good. We better start by searching the cabin here. Captain Wood. I just finished searching it. Oh, Women, kids, that thing loose on board, a thousand places for it to hide. Heaven help us, Christopher. As though you're starting to blame anybody now, gentlemen. I didn't call you in here to pass judgment. The thing's done, and that's that. Yeah, you're right, What we there, have Captain. got to do is to make up our minds how we're going to handle it. Well, it'd be easy if we didn't have to tell the passengers and crew. I've seen panics aboard liners before. I agree with you, Mr. Bowman, but I don't quite see how we can avoid it. Uh, they've got a right to know. As long as that snake's loose, everybody on board's on the same danger. 
And they all ought to know about it. Captain Wood, that thing is 12 feet long. It can't simply crawl into a crack. Why don't we make a quick search of the whole ship before we spread any alarm? I thought of that, Christopher. Well, as far as I can see, the only place it couldn't be is in the boilers or on top of the galley stove. It might have crawled overboard. No, no, no. We can't count on that. We've got to assume it's on the ship somewhere. Yeah, that could be anywhere. With a coil of rope or in a pile of clothes or under a baby's crib. Or even You've in already the... said it. That Bushmaster could be anywhere. We've got to do something, and we've got to do it fast. All right. I think the best idea is to follow Mr. Warner's suggestion. Make a quick search first. You agree to that? Yeah. Yes, then, if so. we don't find it, we'll have to warn the passengers. We've got to find it. Alone in the dim baggage room, I went through the same movements as I had earlier in the captain's cabin. Gun in one hand, flashlight in the other, poking into every dark corner behind every trunk and box. Since the baggage room was empty, I could keep the gun cocked and ready. The rest of those poor devils were having to do the same thing barehanded. All over the ship, the search went on. Here now, Stuart. What on earth are you doing, rummaging through my cabin? I'm just checking up, ma'am. Well, I'm quite sure there's nothing in here that has to be checked. I'm sorry, ma'am. It's captain's orders. It'll only take a few minutes. Well, I've never heard of such a thing. A passenger simply doesn't have any privacy at all. I've traveled on a lot of different lines, but I've certainly never heard of it. Sorry, sir. I wonder if you'd mind moving over to the other rail. I'd like to look through these lockers. Sure, go ahead. What's the matter? You lost something? No, no, nothing like that. No, just oh. looking things over. Well, there's nothing in there but life preservers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You must be getting ready to sink the boat, huh? <laughs> you got to collect the insurance on it, is that it? <laughs> you got to send us all to the bottom, I know. <laughs> Not one of us could find that deadly shape, coiled in some dark corner or outstretched along a window seat. Not one of us caught a glimpse of that horrid head with its beady, black, watchful eyes. The thing lay waiting out there somewhere along the decks, shaded in the gathering dusk. But where, we didn't know. It was nearly dark when we met together again in the chart room. Well, gentlemen, there's no other way around it. We've risked all the time we can. We've got to warn the passengers. How we do it, Captain? Call them all together in the lounge? Oh, indeed. If we did anything like that, we'd be asking for a panic. Uh, We'll get one whether we ask for it or not. Pick a few men and go through the cabin decks. Tell them individually, inside their cabins. Watch for any that act like they might cause trouble, and we keep an eye on them. Handle the crew the same way. As soon as you're finished, arm all the deck officers and start searching again. Our only chance of preventing a riot is to find that damnable snake. The slow nightmare that followed grew worse by the hour. None of us slept. All the ship's officers not on duty kept on with that endless search. Passengers locked themselves in their cabins or huddled together in the lounges, knowing all the time that no spot on board could be called safe. Fear was a heavy fog in the lungs of all of us, and every light on the vessel burned throughout the night. Morning came and brought no relief. Terror and tension mounted by the hour. There now, Mrs. Crane. Stop getting yourself all worked up and go back to your cabin. The horrid things probably crawled overboard anyway. You're just saying that. You're paid to say it. You don't know. Nobody knows. Now, now. Everything's going to be all right. If only we could do something. If all of us could only get off this ship, they could fumigate it. Yes, that's what we've got to do. We've got to get off the ship. No, wait. Mr. Bowman, she's going to jump. Grab her. Nice work, Mr. Bowman. Get her down to her cabin. Whatever you do, don't turn her loose. never know when it might strike you. You can't put on a coat or move a chair without risking your life, and something's got to be done. It might be right here in this lounge. All right, mister. All right, you better quiet down and take it easy. Take it easy, eh? You're a great officer. Why don't you do something about it? That thing might be crawling around here right under our feet somewhere. I said shut up. What are you trying to do, start a panic? I got a right to talk. I don't want to die, and no one's going to tell me what... The second night passed, and morning came around again. A gray and rainy day that dragged past, and then night came down. Third night of the terror. 
Again, every light burned, and the whole ship seethed in the throes of incipient panic. Faced by a horror they'd never met on the sea before, crew and officers alike were on the verge of revolt. Passengers sat huddled in a trance-like stupor, ready to scream at the slightest unknown sound. At seven bells, I made my way forward to the chart room. Found Captain Wood bent over a desk. Oh, hello, Christopher. Come on in. Sit down. It's got to be somewhere, Captain Wood. It's got to be. I don't know. You can search this ship for six months and never touch all the places aboard. If we can only hold out for two more days, we'll be in. What's your home office say? Here's the latest wireless from him. Keep quiet and keep coming. What else can we do? A cigarette, Chris? Oh, thanks. How is it on the decks? Pretty bad. Anything could happen. Yeah. So I took the guns away from the men. One pistol shot, we'd have a riot on our hands. The whole thing's my fault, Captain Wood. That's what I can't oh, forget. Take it easy, lad. It was only some way I could pay for it myself, alone. No, no. I know how you feel, but it's no more your fault than mine or the man who asked you to bring that snake back alive. Nobody planned this. You'd better try to get a little sleep, I think. Sleep? Mr. Bowman made some coffee down in the steward's galley a while ago. Better go on down and get yourself a cup and then rest for a couple of hours. Rest? I can't rest. Christopher, it's not going to help anything if you'll stumble through a hatch half asleep and break your neck, now is it? Hmm? Go on, get some coffee. Okay. One way or another, we've got to hold out for two more days. The light was on in the steward's galley, and the coffee pot was standing on the stove. It was still warm, so I didn't bother to heat it. I poured out a cup, carried it over, and set it on the porcelain tabletop in the center of the room. I started to light a cigarette. The door of the pan cupboard beneath the sink was standing slightly ajar, and I happened to glance toward it. I dropped the cigarette and moved slowly backward. I found the Bushmaster. As I moved... The snake slid out of the cupboard in a single sinuous glide and drew back into a loose coil on the galley floor, never taking his eyes off me. I moved slowly back, waiting any moment for that deadly, slithering strike. How had he known it was me? He'd stayed quiet when Bowman was here. How had he picked the first time in five days that I was without a gun? My hands touched the cold bulkhead behind me, and I stopped. Only then I realized in terror what I'd done... The call button and door were on the far side of the room. I backed into a dead end. I stared at the snake in fascination, expecting any moment the ripping slash of those poisoned fangs. The horrible coils tightened a little, then were still again. Ten million years of evolution to produce this moment. Homo sapiens versus Lucasus muta. Man against mute fate. And all the odds were on fate. I knew then that I was going to die. I could feel the sweat run down between the painted wall and the palms of my hands pressing against it. My skin crawled and twitched. The pit of my stomach was cold as ice. There was no sound but the rush of blood in my ears. The snake shifted again, drawing into a tighter coil. Always tighter. Why didn't the devil get it over with? And... For just an instant, his head veered away. Something moved over by the stove. I didn't dare turn to look at it. Slowly, it moved out into my line of vision. It... it was a cat. That scrawny cat, Clara, that Mother Willis had sneaked aboard in LaGuaira. Its back was arched. Every hair stood on end. It moved stiff-legged now, walking in a half-circle around the snake... The Bushmaster moved slowly, kept watching the cat. He tightened. He was going to strike in any second. He struck and missed. The cat was barely out of reach. Now she was walking back and forth again. She was asking to die. Missed again by a fraction of an inch. He was striking now without even going to a full coil. Missed again and again. Always missing by the barest margin. Each time the cat danced barely out of reach. Each time she countered with one precise spat of a dainty paw, bracing her skinny frame on three stiff legs. And then suddenly, I realized what she was doing. The Bushmaster was tiring, and one strike was just an instant slow. But in that split second, sharp claws raked across the evil head and ripped out both its eyes. 
The cat had deliberately blinded the snake. He didn't bother to call her out, but slid after her in a fury, striking wildly, always missing. And every strike was a little slower than the last one, until finally... As the snake's neck stretched out at the end of a strike, the cat made one leap and sank her razor-sharp teeth just back of the ugly head, sank them until they crunched bone. With tooth and claw, she clung as the monstrous snake flailed and lashed on the floor, striving to get those hideous coils around her, trying to break her hold to shake off the slow and certain paralyzing death that gradually crept over him and at last stilled his struggles forever. I took a deep breath. The first in minutes, the cat lay on her side on the floor, panting, resting from the fight just over she had a right to rest. That mangy, brave, beautiful alley cat had just saved my life. And maybe others as well. But then, as I turned toward the stove, I suddenly became very humble. And I knew all at once what a small thing a human being really is. I and others aboard were still alive only by the merest accident. There were three reasons why that cat had fought and killed the world's deadliest snake. And those three reasons came tottering out from under the stove on shaky little legs. Three kittens, with their eyes bright with wonder, their tails stiff as pokers. Up on the decks, hundreds of passengers were waiting for the news that the days and nights of terror were ended. Well, they could wait a little longer. I pulled open the doors of the cabinet and found a can of milk. Then I dropped down on my knees on the floor of the galley. Escape, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, has brought you John Lund in a shipment of Mute Fate by Martin Storm, specially adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield. Featured in the cast were Barry Kroger as Captain Wood and Lois Corbett as Mother Willis, with David Ellis, Don Diamond, and Vivi Janis. Special sound effects by Earl Keane and Gus Bays. The musical score was conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week, you are trapped in a remote valley in the Andes, walled in by sheer rock precipices, and surrounding you, closing in on you, is a band of blind men who want your eyes. Next week... Escape with H.G. Wells' great story, The Country of the Blind, when our star will be that fine actor, Edmund O'Brien. Good night, then, until this same time next week, when once again CBS offers you Escape. John Lund may soon be seen starring the Paramount picture, Bride of Vengeance. This is Roy Rowan speaking. It's time now for the most wonderful hour of laughter on the air. The mad and merry 60 Minutes with the Jack Benny Show and with Amos and Andy. They will be heard over most of these same CBS stations. And Jack Benny will come to you over them all. You'll never miss them by staying tuned to the station where they say, This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. Present Mr. John Lund in Experiment 6R, a suspense play produced and edited by William Spear.
entirely fitting somehow that here in the Carlton Plaza Hotel, where he spent so much of his life, we should honor this hero of science and pay him our humble gratitude. Mr. Brandt is, as you know at this moment, in our special clinic, and it's from there that he will address us on the subject of Experiment 6R, a page in the progress of science with which his name will forever be associated. When I received his letter and heard the thrilling news that, unknown to any of us, a human volunteer had actually... <laughs> well, it was, of course, inevitable that I should call this distinguished gathering together. Uh, I won't speak any longer now because minutes are precious. Uh, we're ready. Will you speak to us now, Mr. Brandt? Ladies and gentlemen... Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Morris Brandt. Brandt speaking. I don't know exactly how you good people of science are going to take my little story. The history of my own part in Experiment 6R. When I finish my story, if I finish it, you will wonder perhaps why I wish to tell it at all. Well, something about the irony of this situation appeals to me. I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. You know, even the fact that somebody just now pressed a buzzer and I jumped to attention and started speaking is erotic. Because I guess that's how Experiment 6R began a couple of months ago. Yes, just like that. Brandt speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brandt. Very well, sir. It was precisely 3.15. And 3.15 was the time for Mr. Paul Koblenz's afternoon coffee. Naturally, it was beneath the dignity of the manager of the Carlton Plaza Hotel to have the coffee served by anyone less than me, the assistant manager. And so each day, the coffee tray with its silver urns, silver sugar and creamer, silver spoons, and graceful Limoges cups was left on my desk by a waiter ready for the humiliating ceremony. I picked it up and went in. Ah, Mr. Brandt. You'll join me, of course. Well, thank you, Mr. Koblenz. A little coffee is very relaxing. It was relaxing for him. My duties only began with bringing in the coffee. I had to set the silver tray on his desk and then wait while Mr. Koblenz detached a small key from his desk chain. And it was my job to take the key and open the small wall cabinet near the heavily draped window where Koblenz kept a supply of liquor. I would take out a bottle of expensive brandy and carry it over to the desk. Koblenz liked the dash of it in his coffee. Ah, oh, thank you, Mr. Beck. It was this part of the silly ritual that I hated most. That locked cabinet was a symbol of Koblenz's suspicion and distrust. No one but me was ever permitted to enter his sacred office, and I didn't drink. But that made no difference. The liquor was expensive and might be stolen. By whom? By me. Mr. Brandt, I've been looking over the monthly accounts. Your latest innovation seems to be doing uh, quite well. The stag room? Oh, that was a lucky guess. I think not. Your reasoning, I believe, was that businessmen like a place to lunch by themselves in quiet and comfort. It seems, Mr. Brandt, that you have the rare talent of knowing what people want. Well, I hope so. Especially when giving people what they want can be so uh, profitable and lead to give you what you want. Yes, indeed, Mr. Brandt. You have a very successful record during your 12 years here. Perhaps too successful. Why? What do you mean? Success has the habit of making a man crave something further. I think we should have to have a talk someday soon, Mr. Brandt. Uh, but that will be all for today. You may replace the brandy. He handed me the little key to the cabinet. He had finished with me for the day. Back in my office, I thought of what Mr. Koblenz had said. Too successful meant only one thing. He thought that I was ambitious to hold his job. My only possible advancement. Mr. Koblenz was quite correct. I would do anything to have that job. Anything. Now, after 12 years of it, I was determined to have that job. Not because it was a better job, but because it was his. I didn't sleep well 
that night in my cramped inside room, thinking of Mr. Koblenz in his penthouse suite. But finally it was morning, and the hotel came to life again, with all its problems. There were the usual two or three bad checks accepted by the night clerk, and all the other boring, commonplace irritants. The only drama of the day was brought in by the housekeeper. Um, may I speak to you a moment, Mr. Brandt? Uh, yes, Mrs. Oven? It's about 1402, Mr. Brandt. What seems to be the trouble? The maids won't make up 1402. Why? The room... I know it sounds crazy, but that room is full of rats. R- live rats? <laughs> Nonsense. The maids are imagining no, things. It's true. I saw them myself. Very well, Mrs. Oberman. I'll see about it. Everyone's afraid to go in 1402, so I hope you can get them out of there. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Brad. Live rats. What next? Room clerk, please. Hello? Brand speaking. Who's the occupant of 1402? Dr. Tomlinson? Is he in his room? Well, when he returns to the hotel, please let me know. I shall have to speak with him. Rats. <laughs> well, it was fairly typical of the kind of problem which is automatically relayed to the assistant manager being hardly glamorous nor important enough for the manager to be bothered with. Some difficult and taxing assignment, like uh, greeting Greer Garson, maybe, would be more fitting use for the time and talents of Paul Toblenz. As I thought about it, and him, I began to hear a sound in my head like a clock ticking. I recognized that it was almost 3.15. As busy as I was, I could sense, without looking at a clock that it was nearly 3.15. It was time for the buzzer on my desk to sound out the call which symbolized all the tyranny, all the pompous authority and the warped, sadistic soul of... Brandt speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brandt. Very well, sir. Again, the humiliating ritual. Performing the services of a waiter to satisfy Paul Koblenz of his authority. And today he began the talk with me that he had been promising for so long. And Mr. Brandt, you have been with us for 12 years, is that correct? Yes, Mr. Koblenz. 12 years and two months. And you have always impressed me as an ambitious man. A competent man. Well, thank you, sir. But you must realize that you have come as far up the ladder as is possible. At least while I am alive. Well, I don't think that... And I am a very healthy man for my age, Mr. Brandt. Eventually, you may replace me, but, Mr. but it will be a long time to wait, I'm afraid. A very long time indeed. Well, I'm, I'm really awfully busy, Mr. Koblenz. I'm... I have observed certain signs of restlessness in you during the last year or so. Restlessness? You're not satisfied to be merely the assistant manager. You dream of occupying this desk someday. My desk. Will that be all, Mr. Koblenz? I will tell you when you may go. You would like to have my salary which is very considerable, instead of your own, which is uh, a good deal smaller. I I must say that uh, no one is so well qualified. If anything should uh, happen to me, you would automatically be appointed manager of the hotel. Mr. Koblenz, I'm sure I never... We have discussed the matter further. I just wanted you to know that I know, as they say, what the score is. Have you finished your coffee, Mr. Koblenz? I have finished my coffee, Mr. Brandt. Good afternoon. It was exactly 3.30 as Koblenz handed me the little key to the cabinet. And I replaced the brandy. I took the coffee things back into my own office and closed the door. I knew exactly what Koblenz had meant. He had actually said, I know you would like to eliminate me in some way, and I warn you, I'm on the alert. Don't try anything funny if you know what's good for you. As if there were the slightest chance. As much as I hated him, there was nothing I could do. Mr. Brandt speaking. You asked me to call when Dr. Tomlinson returned to the hotel, Mr. Brandt. What? Oh, oh yes. Thank you. Yes? Oh, yes, sir. I am Mr. Brandt, Doctor the assistant manager of the hotel. Oh. Uh, may I step in for a moment? Well, yes, come right in. 
what can I do for you? Well, uh, I suppose you notice your room hasn't been straightened. And of course, it's not difficult to see the reason why. You uh, have them caged, I see. Oh, yes, yes. You mean my rats. They're beautiful specimens, aren't they? Beautiful. How did you get them into the hotel? Oh, the uh, cage fits into a leather carrying case. <laughs> Rather clever, isn't it? I see. Well, I'm sorry, Dr. Tomlinson, but I'm afraid those rats will have to go. Yes, dear me, I was afraid of that. But only be for another day, Mr. Brandt. I'll be returning to New York tomorrow. I, I can't leave them now. They're the subject of an experiment that may lead to the cure of an extremely deadly disease, which, for scientific purposes, we refer to as 6R. Well, I'm you, sure, Doctor. Yeah, let me show you something here. You see this uh, yellow powder? Now, take a look at this label. Uh, paradimethyl... Doctor, I really uh, don't... Paradimethylaminoasbenzamine. It's commonly called a butter yellow, Mr. Brandt. You see, when a rat gets a bit of this daily in his food, he develops 6R within four months, a spreading internal growth which insidiously destroys vital tissues. And by the time the results are evident, the rat is past all hope, and in a very short time, it's dead. Yes, Doctor, it's very fascinating, I'm sure. But... I'm afraid... Oh, will this powder induce 6R in a human being, too? Almost certainly, but naturally we haven't been able to try it. No volunteers. I don't suppose it requires very large doses, either. To develop 6R? Oh, no, indeed. Just a very tiny bit daily, and then... (laughs) Uh, Mr. Branchula, you understand the importance of this work and why I must have the rats with me constantly? But, uh... If you insist, I shall move to another hotel, of course. No, Doctor. I represent the management, and I ask you to stay. And I'll see that your room is straightened. Well, I, I must say that's wonderful of you, Mr. Brandt. Uh, are you interested in science? Not until now. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, uh, by the way, please tell the maid not to go near the cages. Sometimes the rats might bite, and it might be that they could transmit six hours that way. We're not sure, you understand, but it's better not to take any chance. Yes, I understand. Is that powder, I won't attempt to pronounce it, is it quite safe in here? Oh, yes, yes, see? No one could find it here. I see. And besides, no one would know what it was. If some got lost, it looks just like yellow dust. It would only be thrown away. I have more for the experiments. Don't worry, Mr. Brandt. Well, I'm sorry if we've inconvenienced you, Doctor. Oh, have you had dinner? Why, no, as a matter of fact. Oh, would you join me? Seven o'clock in the grill room? Well, I should be very pleased. Good. We'll talk some more. You know, I should think that someone who, well, is desperately ill, let us say, would be honored to be your volunteer. I know in similar circumstances, I should be proud. Until seven, Doctor. Yes, Mrs. Overman. It is very important that Dr. Tomlinson finish his stay. Yes, sir. I will meet the chambermaid in his rooms promptly at 7.15 and see to it that the rats don't frighten them. Thank you, Mr. Brandt. The doctor arrived exactly at 7. And at 7.10, while he was still sipping his sherry, I excused myself and went up to 14.02. When the chambermaid was taking the soiled linens to the laundry wagon in the hall, leaving me alone in Dr. Tomlinson's room, I filled a hotel envelope with a deadly yellow powder. I was back downstairs before the soup was served. I had never enjoyed a dinner more. Dr. Tomlinson prattled on, but I didn't even hear. I was thinking what a pleasure it was going to be to have coffee at 3.15 tomorrow afternoon with Mr. Paul Copeland. Brandt speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brandt. Yes, Mr. Koblenz. A waiter had just brought the tray, set it on my desk and left. My door was locked. I took out the envelope with the powder, put a pinch of it into one of the costly Limoges cups, filled both cups with coffee from the silver pot, and carried the tray into the sumptuous office next door. The office that would soon become my own. You will join me, of course, Mr. Brandt. Of course, Mr. Koblenz. Of course.
course I would. I always had. But beginning with today, I would enjoy it. There was not the slightest alteration in the usual ridiculous routine. Koblenz removed the little key from his chain and handed it to me. I got the brandy from the cabinet. Koblenz poured a bit of the brandy into his cup and took a sip. Hmm. Exceptionally good coffee today, but they make it yourself. Hmm? What? <laughs> Why, how do you mean? Oh, don't take me so seriously, Brandt. But knowing your efficiency in all matters of the hotel, I'm sure you could prepare a very unusual cup of coffee. Well, that, that's very nice of you to say, Mr. Koblenz. But I know you haven't time to waste making coffee. Too busy thinking of ways you can work your way into my job, aren't you? Hmm? And as I told you before, you won't get it while I live, and I come from a very long-lived family. Yes, surely. More coffee, sir? Nothing could possibly go wrong. I had found out enough from Dr. Tomlinson to know that humans, and I stretched a point to include Paul Koblenz, that humans responded to drugs in very much the same way as rats. That was the reason rats were used for experiments in medical research. Almost invariably, the drugs that could kill a rat could kill a man. The powder would never be detected, only its effect. When, after months of tiny doses, Koblenz would suddenly learn that he was harboring the hidden killer, 6R. I kept the powder in my jacket pocket. As the weeks passed, it became a matter of routine to put some in Paul Koblenz's daily coffee. Try as I would to remain calm, sometimes the excitement of it would become almost unbearable, particularly at the moments when I serve the coffee. Mr. Brandt, I can't tell you what pleasure this afternoon cup of coffee gives me. And of course, it gives me one of the few chances I get during the day to see my busy and uh, trusted assistant. That is a pleasure, too. Thank you, Mr. Koblenz. Oh, I uh, received a letter a few days back from a Dr. Ernst Tomlinson. Tomlinson? He was a guest here, I believe, for several days. Oh, really? Well, I, I don't... Surely you haven't forgotten. He wished specifically to be remembered to you. The gentleman with the rats. Rats? Oh, oh, yes, I, I do recall something. Yes, of course. I realize, Mr. Brandt, that I have allowed many of my managerial duties to fall on your capable shoulders... Uh, which action has perhaps given you a mistaken opinion of your authority on these premises? But really, Mr. Brandt, live rats in a room. The animals were caged? I think I should have been consulted. Fortunately, our other guests were not cognizant of the fact that we were for two days uh, zookeepers of a sort. If they had known, I'm afraid, Mr. Fenwick should have immediately replaced you. I'm sorry, Mr. Koblenz. Yes, I'm sure. The good doctor seemed quite taken by you, Mr. Brandt. Have you a personality side you've never shown me? I've always considered you rather dull. Will that be all, Mr. Koblenz? You're angry. Well, no matter. See, yes, that would be all. I'm rather tired today. Go, please. Dr. Tomlinson had written, but only to compliment me. That was good. He hadn't missed any of the yellow powder. As far as Koblenz's insulting behavior was concerned, well, there wouldn't be much more of it. Dr. Tomlinson had said there were no outward effects to 6R. The tiny admission of fatigue on Paul Koblenz's part was, I felt, a good sign. I watched Paul Koblenz grow progressively more testy and insulting. Two weeks into the fourth month of Experiment 6R... And in a way I didn't expect, the last scene began. Under the insurance laws of our state, all employees participating in group insurance had a yearly physical examination. The four months Dr. Tomlinson had considered necessary to allow the growth of 6R were almost completed. By now, 6R would have taken hold of Paul Koblenz, sufficiently to be recognized in a medical examination, and sufficiently to be at that point incurably fatal. Even at this late date, there were outwardly no signs of Koblenz's illness, which would make the announcement by the insurance doctor even more shocking. It was a nervous moment. 
Brandt speaking. Mr. Brandt, I have set aside 2.30 as the time for my visit to the insurance doctors. That should get me back to my office for coffee. After which, if you have no pressing duties, you may... Yes, Mr. Koblenz. At 3 o'clock, I heard him come back into his office next door. He walked rather heavily, I thought. I wanted desperately to see him at once, to see the reaction he must have to the news the insurance doctors had given him. But I waited. Finally, it was 3.15. Brandt speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brandt. Yes, Mr. Koblenz. The waiter had brought the coffee tray as usual. I carried it in. Koblenz sat quietly at his desk, his face partially in the shadow from the drawn blinds. You'll join me, of course, Mr. Brandt. Oh, thank you, Mr. Koblenz. Here's the key. I set the tray down, took the little key to the liquor cabinet which stood against the wall, and bent over to open it. There was a new mirror above the cabinet. And what I saw in it made me drop the bottle. Anything wrong, Mr. Brandt? You seem startled. The cops. The cops. You've turned absolutely white as death. But then I meant to talk to you. You haven't been looking well for some time. You... you changed... I beg your pardon? You... you switched the coffee cups while I turned away to get your brandy. I always do. It is an old custom in my family. An old German custom. A very old custom. A very old and long-lived family. Have you... all this time? Yes, Mr. Brandt. All this time. Operator, connect me with the insurance doctors, please, in 308. Is it possible for you to see Mr. Brandt immediately, doctor? Thank you. It's urgent. And so, experiment 6R is finished. I am glad to have been of service to science, but I just couldn't die without sharing the, the credit with Mr. Koblenz. I am sorry, truly sorry, that he could not be there with you today in his old capacity as manager of the hotel, but Mr. Fenwick saw fit to discharge Mr. Koblenz when it was brought to his attention that live rats had been permitted to spend the night in one of our rooms. And now, thank you for your attention, and, and goodbye. I was just bringing your order, Mr. Brandt. Your friend just phoned and told me. If you'd only mentioned it before... You... Friend? Mm-hmm. Mr. Koblenz. Koblenz? But... I didn't order anything. Oh, now, Mr. Brandt, it's no trouble. We know now about your little custom. If you want coffee at 3.15 every day, you shall have it. Come now. It's just 3.15. Suspense presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, John Lund, in Experiment 6R. Next Thursday for Suspense, Charles Lawton and June Havoc will be our stars. The play is called Blind Date. And it is, as we say... A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Tonight's Suspense play was produced and edited by William Spear and directed by Norman MacDonald. Music for Suspense is composed by Lucian Morawieck and conducted by Lud Gluskin. Experiment 6R was a radio play by Donald Stubbs and Harold Kahn. John Lund may currently be seen in the Hal Wallace production for Paramount, My Friend Irma. In the coming weeks, you will hear such stars as Van Johnson, Edward Arnold, and Betty Davis. Don't forget, next Thursday, same time, Autolite will present Suspense, starring Charles Lawton and June Havoc. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Well, guys, that does it for Mr. John Lund and his performance on the show for tonight. I hope you guys have enjoyed my podcast so far. If you like the show, please comment and subscribe. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms such as Spotify, Google, Apple, CastBox, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. Just type in Mystery and Comedy Old Time Radio Podcast and it should pull my podcast right up. In the coming, this coming Friday, please join me as we welcome back Mr. Robert Young in the NBC comedy show Father Knows Best. And stay tuned for the coming weeks as we welcome such stars as Joseph Cotton, Miss Lucille Ball, and Mr. Richard Denning in the CBS comedy show My Favorite Husband, Miss Ida Lupino, and many others. If you like the show, please comment and subscribe, guys. And have a great night. Thanks.